Good evening and welcome to our Bible study series. Uh, we are continuing in a series that we have entitled Out of Bondage into Abundance. And we have now come to part four. Uh, there are notes available for all of these Bible studies at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org. And we record all of these sessions as well, and those are also put up there on the website. So any previous messages that you might have missed, uh, hopefully you can access them there. I'm really excited about part four that we've now come to, coming to Mount Sinai. And we've mentioned from the start of this study that the entire journey of the Israelites out of Egypt all the way into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. It is actual history. It really happened. It's not some fairy tale. However, as that history was unfolding, God was painting a picture for us. It's called a type or a shadow. And what happened to the Israelites in the Old Testament is a shadow of something far greater, far more real, which is our journey out of sin into heaven itself, into the abundant life that Jesus Christ offers us. And tracing each step of Israel's journey we are seeing that it corresponds to different experiences that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. They started off in bondage. We start off in bondage. Jesus said, whoever sins is the slave of sin. Paul wrote to the Romans quite a bit about coming out of the dominion, the yoke, the bondage of sin. And just as the Israelites came out of that bondage only through the blood of the Passover lamb, so you and I are freed from the clutches of sin when we put our faith and trust in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We just celebrated uh, Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday this past weekend, but let it not just be a celebration once a year. He's risen. He's risen indeed. The tomb is empty. Jesus Christ shed his precious, holy, sinless blood on the cross of Calvary so that you and I can be set free from every addiction, every oppression, every bondage of sin. And it's very real. This isn't religion we're talking about. This is real power. Power to come out of darkness and to move into God's marvelous, glorious light. And we said at the very beginning of this study that there were three basic steps to Israel's coming out of bondage, which is only half of the story because they came out so that they could go in. But we want to first finish this initial part of coming out completely out of bondage. Three parts. The celebration of the Passover, which we've studied. 
crossing through the Red Sea, which we saw is a beautiful picture of water baptism, and now the third step, coming to Mount Sinai. Fifty days after they left Egypt, the Israelites came to a mountain called Mount Sinai. And we just began to introduce this last week, and we're going to read some of the verses again to refresh them in our minds. But after passing through the Red Sea, the Egyptians were dead. The Israelites saw their dead bodies lying on the shore, and they knew that they were once and for all free from Egypt. But as they begin their journey to the Promised Land, they have a very important stopping point. And we will see they actually end up spending almost a year at this third place called Mount Sinai. And they come to the mountain, and it's all on fire and trembling and smoke on the mountain and uh, just a tremendous manifestation of God's power and glory there at Mount Sinai. And we're going to see tonight, it's a very clear picture of an experience God wants every Christian to have, and it's called being baptized in the Holy Spirit. We have referred a number of times now to a key portion of Scripture in the New Testament, John chapter 3, verses 3 to 5, where Jesus had his discourse with Nicodemus. And summarizing it, Jesus said, you need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. But he went on to say, you must be born of water and born of the Spirit to enter the kingdom. I think it's very simple to understand. Seeing something and entering it is two different things. I can see my neighbor's house across the street from where I'm sitting now, but I have to get out of my chair, cross the street, knock on the door, and enter into their house to truly enter. So seeing the kingdom is a result of being born again. That happens when we put our trust in Jesus, the Passover lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ. We are forgiven all of our sins, and we're born again. Born of water speaks about another experience that takes place in water baptism. It's a powerful experience where the old man is buried, the nature of sin is crucified, dead, and buried, and then we can be raised up by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life. And that's this third experience. Jesus referred to it as being baptized in the Holy Spirit, or receiving the promise of the Spirit. Now, more about that a little later. So, the Israelites, after passing through the Red Sea, and... Fifty days after their initial exodus from Egypt, they come to Mount Sinai. And there the fire of God's holy presence has descended, and the whole mountain is trembling and quaking violently. And I want to read again from Exodus chapter 19, 
verse 1, and then we'll read from verse 10 down to verse 20 again. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, remember they left in the first month, it's now the third month, after they left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. Verse 10, And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain will be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. This was a fearful time, a very fearful experience. They're coming face to face with Almighty God and his fire and his glory is all over this mountain. And God says, stay away right now. Be careful. Don't approach this mountain. Verse 14, after Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. Make note of that. The Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. The power of God, the fire of God is on this mountain. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai, and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. What Israel is going to experience here at Mount Sinai is a beautiful picture of the New Testament experience we've referred to, baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's an experience that God wants every born-again believer to have. It's called the promise of the Father. It's a free gift, the gift of God's Holy Spirit. And many years after Israel came to Mount Sinai and God's fire was there on the mountain, we read of another group of 120 disciples waiting in an upper room for the promised baptism in the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And I want you to notice how carefully God scripted this whole story. The Israelites come to Mount Sinai 50 days after the Passover. 
the 120 disciples waiting in the upper room in Acts chapter 1, we read in Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. That is 50 days after the Feast of Passover. What are the chances of that being just a coincidence? I don't think so. And we will now read Acts 2, verses 1 to 4, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. It says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Just pause and think about those words. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, it's almost like God was checking off the days on his calendar, and he wanted this to be exactly on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. When it had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven. Remember, there were lots of sounds at Mount Sinai, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. Fire on Mount Sinai, fire on the day of Pentecost. Divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You know, John the Baptist, while he was baptizing in the River Jordan, he prophesied about this experience. And we read about it in Luke chapter 3, verse 16. It says, John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Holy Spirit and fire. Note the connection often between the Spirit of God and fire. So, the 120 men and women who were waiting in the upper room until the day of Pentecost, they were baptized with God's spirit and fire. <clears throat> and shortly after that, on another occasion, they were meeting together, they were praying, and it says in Acts 4, verse 31, that they were again filled with the Holy Spirit, and listen to these words, the place where they were meeting was shaken. So many similarities. Mount Sinai, trembling and shaking. The day of Pentecost, mighty rushing wind. The whole place is shaking with God's power. Mount Sinai, the whole mountain is on fire. God has descended in his fire and, and glory. Day of Pentecost, they're baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. Tongues of fire are resting on each one of their heads. Before we even get into the details tonight, 
I want to encourage you. God wants Christians that are full of the Holy Spirit and fire. He doesn't want lukewarm, uh, half-hearted, half-asleep Christians. He wants us to be full of this fire, full of this power. He wants to shake us to the very core with the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the power of resurrection, and it's the promise of the Father. God wants every Christian to be on fire for him, to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, to be walking in newness of life, that resurrected life that Jesus Christ offers each one of us. Now, Israel's experience at Mount Sinai is just a shadow of what you and I now experience when we are baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. And we outlined this last time. I'm going to go through it again, and then we're going to get into more detail. We're going to be looking at seven important things that took place at Mount Sinai. Remember, the Israelites, we will learn, were camped here for almost one year. Think about it. They come out of Egypt. Almost immediately, they pass through the Red Sea. Fifty days later, they come to Mount Sinai, and then God says, stay right here. For almost one full year, they were camped at Mount Sinai. Very important stopping place and some very important business God wants to take care of before the Israelites can move on. Seven things we're going to look at, and every one of them corresponds to a significant aspect of the baptism in the Holy Spirit and what God does in your life and mine through that experience. Okay, here's the list. Number one, at Mount Sinai, God revealed his law and he made a covenant with his people. Number two, God brought his people into an intimate, holy marriage relationship with himself. Number three, God sought for a temple where he could dwell. Number four, God revealed his glory to his people. Number five, at Mount Sinai, God organized and united his people into one body, placing them in ranks as one mighty army. Number six, at Mount Sinai, God established a kingdom of priests. And lastly, he prepared his people to begin their march into the promised land, prepared them so that they could possess their promised inheritance. Now, let's look at this first point tonight. At Mount Sinai, God revealed his law and made a covenant with the Israelites. You'll recall that here at Mount Sinai is where Moses received the Ten Commandments, the Word of God, God's holy law, written with the very finger of God on tablets of stone, 
And it was there at Mount Sinai that God made a covenant with all of his people. Let's read a few scriptures. Exodus 31 and verse 18. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law. Notice that. Two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. These were not just some rules to sort of help the Israelites live a better life. This law was the very core of a covenant that God was making with Israel. Their whole relationship would be based upon this law, which was a revelation of God's righteousness, a revelation of his will. Also in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, says, Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. <coughs> Excuse me. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Horeb is another word for Sinai. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face, listen carefully to these words, out of the fire on the mountain. So out of that fire on Mount Sinai, God speaks to the people face to face, he brings them into a covenant, and he reveals his law to them, gives the law to Moses written with the very finger of God. The laws and commandments that were engraved on those tablets of stone were a clear revelation of God's righteousness and his will for his people. And just a side note, they're still the basis of the legal system in the United States and in many other countries. It is being eroded away now by the secular humanist uh, elements in our society, but for many, many decades, the, the law of the land was based upon this covenant law that God gave through Moses to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. It's a revelation of God's righteousness, what's right and what's wrong. It's a revelation of his will for his people. And as I mentioned, these laws were to be the basis for Israel's whole covenant relationship with Jehovah God. Unfortunately, the children of Israel were unable to keep the covenant because their hearts were hard and stubborn as demonstrated by the fact that the covenant 
was engraved on stone. Now, coming over to the New Testament, through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the believer in Christ is brought into a new covenant with God. We often refer to the old covenant. Well, that old covenant was the very covenant that was made at Mount Sinai. But it has been replaced now with a new covenant. The follower of Jesus Christ is brought into the fullness of that new covenant where a new law called the law of the Spirit, we'll read about this in a minute, the law of the Spirit is written by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone as at Mount Sinai, but on tablets of human hearts. A very important passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, from verse 3 to verse 16. The Apostle Paul here draws a very extensive parallel between what happened at Mount Sinai and what happens through the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Follow this carefully. 2 Corinthians 3, starting with verse 3. He says, You show that you are a letter or an epistle from Christ, the result of our ministry written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, he's going to follow this right on through this whole chapter. And he's using the language of Mount Sinai, and then he's comparing it to what's happening now under the New Covenant. Notice again, this writing is now being done by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone like what we saw at Mount Sinai, but where God really wants to write his law is on tablets of human hearts. So the two tablets that Moses held in his hands with the writing of God, uh, the law of God written with the finger of God, that's just a shadow of the real handwriting of God's finger on tablets of human hearts. Verse 4. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Notice that. He's now talking about the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, 
transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Now let's pause here. Here again, he's drawing a clear parallel between Moses, Mount Sinai, and the law that was engraved on those tablets of stone, and what God is doing now through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That ministry of Moses, Paul says, it only brought death. The letter of the law kills. It's the Spirit that gives life. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Now, it was pretty glorious what happened at Mount Sinai, and we haven't come to this part yet. We will talk about it in a little bit. But Moses' face was shining with the very glory of God when he came down from Mount Sinai. They couldn't even look at his face. That's what Paul is referring to here in verse 7. The ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, it came with glory. The Israelites could not steadily look at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was. But now there's a more glorious ministry. It's called the ministry of of the Spirit. Verse 9. If the ministry that brought condemnation, that's the law, Moses, if that ministry was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts." But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. If you're not real familiar with this passage, I would strongly recommend going back and rereading it and studying over it very carefully because I think this is very, very important to understanding our, our whole New Testament experience. The the letter of the law, Paul says, it brings death, it brings condemnation. And the only ministry that truly brings life to people is the ministry of 
the Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus waited 30 years until he was baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then, and only then, did he stand up in the temple and read from Isaiah, the, the scroll from what we now refer to as Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel, and on and on he goes. So, the new covenant ministry is through the Holy Spirit. When we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, and going back to verse 3 again, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. <clears throat> the Spirit of God actually begins to write upon your heart, my heart. He's inscribing the law of God right there on our hearts. And man's heart of stone, we mentioned already, it's no accident that the Old Covenant law was written on stones because it was a picture of the condition of their heart. Their heart was stony, stubborn, <clears throat> and they always were refusing to obey that law. But even in the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel prophesied of a new day coming and a new covenant coming where all that was going to change. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. Very important verses. If you don't know these by memory, I would recommend memorizing them. This is the heart of the new covenant. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Remember, Paul said, written not with ink on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. I will remove from your heart, from you, your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And listen to this, and I will put my spirit in you. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This gives us tremendous insight into what God wants to accomplish through the new covenant. It's not just a new set of laws and rules for us to try to keep. That failed. That totally failed under the Mosaic Covenant, and God knew it was going to fail. He wanted it to fail to show us our desperate need for something more than another set of rules. We need a heart transplant. That's right. We need a whole new heart. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And that's just half of the story. 
Once the heart is changed, then something else needs to happen. I will put my spirit in you, and listen to this part, and once my spirit is inside of you, he will move you or motivate you, cause you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. It's, it's a whole different approach to righteousness. It's now coming from within. It's internal. It's inside each one of us. My heart has been changed. The Spirit of God is now living inside of me, and He's moving me, He's motivating me, He's causing me to desire righteousness and holiness. He's moving my heart to seek after the things of God. There's an interesting scripture in Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm. It's the psalm which Jesus quoted, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make all your enemies your footstool. But listen to verse 3, and I like it in the Amplified Version. Psalm 110, verse 3. Your people, this is referring to God's people, your people will offer themselves willingly in the day of your power. You see, on the day of Pentecost, the power of the Holy Spirit came upon those 120 disciples, and their hearts were changed. They were made willing to offer themselves totally and willingly to God. And many of them even became martyrs for Christ. They were totally sold out to the gospel, totally giving themselves to God. Why? Because they were filled with God's power on the day of his power. This new law that is written upon the heart James refers to it in James 2, verse 8, as the royal law. And if you study carefully, it's actually the law of love. It's not a whole bunch of rules, don't do this, don't do that. This new law written by the Spirit of God upon our hearts is the law of love. It enables us to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law by loving God and by loving our fellow man with a divine love that has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. I'm quoting that from Romans 5, verse 5. The love of God has been shed abroad or poured out into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit. Also in Romans chapter 8, verses 2 to 4, it says, Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, note those words, the law of the Spirit. This isn't the law of Mount Sinai. That's been replaced now with a whole different law called the law of the Spirit. And, remember, 
The law of Mount Sinai only brings death and condemnation, but this law brings life. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. And pay careful attention to verse 4. In order that, he did all of this, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The righteous requirement of the law, everything that God was requiring of the Israelites at Mount Sinai, they were not able to meet. They were not able to fulfill. Paul says, now the righteous requirement of God's law can be fully met in us, not by keeping rules, not by living in the flesh, but according to the Spirit, by the law of the Spirit. <clears throat> it's the law of love. It's loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it's loving our neighbor with the same kind of love that God has loved us with. Listen again in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. Romans 13, from 8 to 10. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. All those 600 and some odd laws that God ended up giving them at Mount Sinai, you can sum it all up in one law. It's the law of love. If you love God with all your heart and love others, you're fulfilling the law of God. It's really that simple. We're not able to do it in our own flesh, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the law of the Spirit written upon our hearts. But it really is this simple. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Verse 9, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You don't need a commandment telling you don't murder if you love your neighbor. 
You don't need a commandment telling you don't steal from your neighbor if you love your neighbor. Of course you're not going to steal from him. You don't need a commandment saying you shall not covet if you love your neighbor. And Paul is really making this very simple. The whole law is summed up in one word. It's the word love. The law of the Spirit is the law of love. God gives us a new heart, a heart of flesh, and then he inscribes the law of the Spirit upon our very heart. He moves us by his Spirit, and of course, the Holy Spirit comes to take up residence in us. He dwells in us. Now, in the passage we read a little earlier in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul talked about a veil being over Moses' face and also a veil being over the hearts of those who were under the old covenant of the Sinai law. The veil that's upon the heart is finally taken away, and the Holy Spirit, the author of all Scripture, he begins to reveal deeper truths and mysteries from the Word of God. Let me read that section again from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 again. It says from verse 13, We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. That veil has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. In a number of places, particularly in the Gospel of John, Jesus spoke a lot about the Counselor, the Comforter, the Paraclete, the one who was going to come after he departed, and of course he was referring to the Holy Spirit, and what the Holy Spirit was going to do when he came to dwell in the disciples. In John 16, verses 12 to 15, we read one of several such passages. Jesus said, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit 
will receive from me what he will make known to you. So, one of the real ministries of the Holy Spirit, when a believer is baptized in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit removes the veil, and even in the reading of the Old Testament, God begins to reveal things to us, and the Holy Spirit begins to make things known to us. I like that. The Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. We actually begin to grow in our knowledge of God, revelation knowledge that comes through the Holy Spirit. Look also in 1 Corinthians 2, from verse 9 to 16. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. Okay, let's pause here. There are things, Paul says, things that God has already prepared for those people who love him. But we can't understand them. We can't find them out. It's beyond seeing. It's beyond hearing. It's beyond understanding. No eye has seen. No ear has heard. No human mind can conceive of such things. But, verse 10, God has revealed them to us by His Spirit. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. Thank God for the Holy Spirit taking off the blinders, removing the scales, lifting up the veil, and making things known to us. Spiritual mysteries that have been hidden for centuries. I can't see them. Ear can't hear them. The smartest of minds can't figure them out but they're revealed to us by the Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. I'm going to read that again. No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us, so that we may understand one of the great purposes of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. God wants to help us understand Him. <clears throat> understand His mind. Understand His thoughts. Understand His will. We can't figure it out with our own little puny brains. We need the Holy Spirit to reveal it to us. Let me read verse 12 again. 
What we have received is not the spirit of the world. It has nothing to do with this world. The colleges, the universities, the books, the intellectuals of this world have nothing to do with this. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Holy Spirit. Wow! i got to read that again. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The Holy Spirit wants to be our teacher. The Holy Spirit wants to explain spiritual realities to us. That's awesome. Verse 14. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. You know, the New Testament church needs to really come back to ground zero, which is the power, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We've put way too much confidence in human wisdom, human words, human intellect, human institutions, human this, that, and the other. We need to come back to the, the prophecy of Zechariah, not by might, not by power, but it's by my spirit, saith the Lord. The church that's going to arise in these last days and overcome is a spirit-filled church. The people whom God is going to use in very special and powerful ways in these last days are people who are filled with, taught by, anointed by, and led by the Holy Spirit. Thank God for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Thank God for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that brings life, brings light, brings revelation, strips away the veils and the blinders so that we can see and know and understand spiritual realities. Notice those words again. Back up to verse 13. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, can't learn this in college, 
but in words taught by the Spirit. That happens on your knees, fasting, praying, crying out to God, seeking the Holy Spirit. Words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. I'm going to tell you something. Uh, after 40 years of ministry, more than ever before in my life, I am very much aware of my total dependence on the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that to sound humble. I'm telling you the truth. I don't have any confidence in human wisdom, human learning, book knowledge, human cleverness to accomplish anything of any value. It all brings death. What we need is a mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit like they had on the day of Pentecost. What we need are the gifts of the Holy Spirit, revelation and teaching that comes through the Holy Spirit so that we can be taught words by the Holy Spirit and then we can go out into the world in that anointing and speak those revelations that the Holy Spirit has made known to us. Thank God for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. One more verse, and we'll close here for tonight. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, I want you to notice the close association between the Scripture and the Holy Spirit. If you and I are going to understand the scriptures, it's going to come one way. It's through the Holy Spirit. He's the teacher. He's the one who ultimately has to make these things known to us. Peter says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, not by private interpretations. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. <clears throat> but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Prophecy, Scripture, it's all inspired by the Holy Spirit. And when you and I are baptized in the Holy Spirit, we have the author of Scripture living inside of us now. And he can begin to explain, reveal, and make spiritual truths known to us. Notice in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost came, and Peter and John and Mary and the other disciples were all there baptized in the Holy Spirit. Yes, Mary was a Pentecostal. She was a tongue-speaking Pentecostal. I always like to tell my Catholic friends that. After receiving the Holy Spirit, notice a dramatic change in Peter. Right there in Acts chapter 2. As soon as he was baptized in the Holy Spirit, he began to receive profound revelation from numerous Old Testament scriptures. He quotes from from Joel chapter 2. This is what Joel was talking about. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
and he quotes from different places in the Psalms about the resurrection of Christ. This was the promise that Jesus gave about the Holy Spirit. This was that promise in action. We can actually see it taking place before our very eyes with Peter on the day of Pentecost. And you'll remember on numerous occasions, Jesus would try to teach the disciples different things, and they would kind of scratch their head and look at him, and they didn't have a clue what he was talking about. But man, how things changed after the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit began to open their eyes and reveal profound mysteries, spiritual realities to these disciples. So, let's tie up this first uh, thing that happened at Mount Sinai for tonight, and we will continue next time. God brought them to Mount Sinai. He descended on the mountain with fire, and there he revealed his law, and he made a covenant with the people. Likewise, through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, we are baptized with God's Spirit and with fire. There's a shaking. The power of God comes. It's called the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Resurrection power now fills us. And God begins to write, not on tablets of stone, but on soft tablets, tablets of human hearts, hearts that had been changed. Remember, God promised under the new covenant to remove the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh and then put his spirit within us and cause us to walk in his ways. This is how God makes a new covenant with his people. It's through the law of the Spirit. It's not a list of rules that we can write down and and tack up on the wall in the church. It's the law of the Spirit. It's basically loving God and loving people to the point where we will obey whatever the Holy Spirit tells us to do. That is the law of the Spirit. And it requires walking in the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, obeying the Spirit. When we do that, it brings life, and we can bring life to other people as well. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you, thank you, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. My goodness, what a wonderful, marvelous change takes place in our lives when you baptize us with your Holy Spirit. God, we are transformed. We become new creations in Christ. Born again, born of water, and born of the Spirit, we can now begin to enter into your kingdom. And your Holy Spirit comes to totally transform us from the inside out, replacing that heart of stone, that stubborn, rebellious heart, with a tender heart of flesh. 
And Lord, you begin to write upon that heart. You begin to write upon those tablets of human hearts, the law of the Spirit. You begin to put your love into our hearts so that we will love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves and thereby fulfill every righteous requirement of the law. For love is the fulfilling of your law. God, I pray for each and every one listening to this Bible study tonight, others that may listen in the future. God, baptize each and every one with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Let that anointing come upon each one of our lives, the anointing that breaks the yoke, the anointing that brings life and healing to those around us. We thank you that it is not by might, not by power, but it is by your Spirit, O God. Fill, baptize, and lead each one of us with your powerful Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.